ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. But first to a big repositioning, another chapter in the life of Saudi Arabia. Until recently, it had pariah status due to the 2018 murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi and its intervention in the Yemen civil war. My, how things change, though, in this fluid world of ours. Now it's being courted again by the big players from East and West. You'll be surprised, I think, to hear how moves within Saudi and beyond are playing out in this strangely volatile time internationally, with big power blocks shifting as they are. The Saudis want to be seen as respected diplomats on the world stage. Now, what that might mean for their key Western allies, the US, let alone the the rest of the Middle East, is worth considering, and don't forget China. Well, I'm pleased to welcome now someone who enjoys threading her way through this maze. The journalist Kim Guttis joins us now from Beirut, having written an excellent piece on this issue for the Financial Times. Hello there. Good morning from Beirut. Great to speak to you, Geraldine. Kim, your view is that Saudi Arabia's repositioning itself, or maybe it's positioning itself, as a linchpin in what will become a new world order. What are the obvious signs of this? Saudi Arabia is certainly trying to position itself as a linchpin, as an essential player on the global stage. But of course, we'll have to see how they manage that and if they are successful. What is helping them are oil prices and oil revenues, which allow them to, first of all, spend a lot of money at home to remake Saudi Arabia. And the transformation is quite astounding. We can be critical, very critical of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince's approach to ruling and the very oppressive methods he uses, but the social and cultural transformation of the country has been rapid and amazing for young Saudis, Gen Z and and Saudis in, in general. That money also allows him to be a player on the global stage and have in some ways the upper hand in some of the negotiations with the United States. They've had several run-ins on that issue. And it allows the Saudis to also regionally play a different role. I think they ate a lot of humble pie over the last few years because of various episodes like the Shamal Khashoggi murder, Mm. the war in Yemen, which they thought would be successful but turned into a disaster, the embargo on Qatar, which they thought would be successful but turned out to be a useless disaster as well. They've not managed to score any successes with aggressive foreign adventures. And now they're trying a different style of smarter diplomacy, playing the whole chessboard. Yes. And we'll come to that in a moment. Just a little bit more on that US-Saudi relationship, which has been so critical, a long and strategically important one for both parties. I wonder how you would characterise it at the moment, because the Saudis seem to be determined to say, we are not the malleable ally we used to be. That is correct. They don't want to give anything for free. They don't want to do anything just because the US asks them to. And that's an adjustment that requires the US to better understand its role in the world in an international affairs where lots of middle powers are rising, but America is still the superpower. 
it needs to learn how to sometimes delegate and use its allies to everyone's best interest and to convince countries like Saudi Arabia that they can work together towards the same goal rather than bristle at Saudi Arabia's efforts to strike out on its own. I think that's a difficult balance to find sometimes as a superpower. It's one that the U.S. has found with Western allies. They don't always see eye to eye, but they work together towards the same goal. It's a little bit harder to do that with countries like Saudi which come from a very different angle, have different values, different histories, and so on. But it is going to be essential if the United States wants to work and maintain some of these relationships, which are to its own advantage. Joe Biden, when he was a candidate called Saudi Arabia a pariah, and he was right to do so. But as president, he's realized that he also needs to work with them, that oil is suddenly important again because of the war in in Ukraine. Even though they don't need it. The Americans don't need their oil the way they once did. They don't, but they need the prices to be at a certain level. And so they need to negotiate and discuss with the Saudis. And the idea that you could completely disengage from the from the Middle East, has proven to be wrong. Uh, And I've always maintained it's not possible to completely disengage from the Middle East because this is also where the great power game happens. President Joe Biden thought that he could ignore the Saudis, not necessarily deal with them, not try to get them on board. But he's realized because of the war in Ukraine that he needs everybody in the tent rather than uh, some of them being outside. What have they said about the war in Ukraine, the Saudis? The Saudis initially bristled at the idea that they were asked to deliver for the United States and vote in support of Ukraine at the UN. And that's where we see the change in tone on both sides. I think the US initially thought they could rally everybody very quickly because it was something that they could easily sell to Mm. their allies and partners around the world. But we are no longer in 1990, 1991, where George Bush, the father, could rally a very motley crew of countries, 35 of them, to come together for Operation Desert Storm and Mm. and Desert Shield. The Saudis would never have dreamt of saying no at the time because their security depended on the US. Today, things have changed, and yet the Saudis still do require support and protection from the United States, but they want this relationship to be a little bit more equal. And the US has understood over the last few months or the last year that they need to approach this a bit differently if they want to get the Saudis on board. And it's been very interesting to see that the first Arab state official to visit Kiev was the Saudi foreign minister earlier this year. And then President Zelensky was invited to attend the Arab League summit in Jeddah last month. So it's not to please the United States. It's because the Saudis themselves realize it's also to their advantage because the conversation with the US has been more, I think, comprehensive and less about lecturing. Yes, well, I mean, it is interesting. They've had Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, visit from the US. They've had Tony Blinken, the uh, Secretary of State, a visit. At the same time, uh, they've hosted a major Chinese-Arab 
business mm-hmm. conference. Mm-hmm. And then the really extraordinary thing, the intervention in the golf, PGA's tours, controversial mm-hmm. merger with Live Golf. And I've got a great quote here from James Dorsey, whom we've used for as a very good commentator on the Middle East. The message to the Washington is unmistakably clear. This is from a man called Aaron David Miller, a Middle East Mm -hmm. negotiator. The message from the Saudis is, we've got influence even in your own backyard and you're not the only game in town. Now, do you agree with that assessment? I would say that that's how the Saudis would like to be seen. And they do have influence, but they're not the United States. They're not a superpower. They're trying to be. They want to be a global player. And with that comes responsibility and comes more maturity. They need to demonstrate that if they want to be taken seriously. I don't think we're there yet. And we've seen many times in the past where the Saudis want to play a mature global diplomatic role. And then they wake up one morning and uh, they decide, oh, actually, no, we're going to do it differently, which suddenly undermines all their efforts. You know, we had an incident like that in 2013, where the Saudis had lobbied very hard for two years to be elected to one of the rotating Security Council seats. And they finally got it. And it was a moment of pride for Saudi diplomats. And they went out there and gave their press conference about how this showed that Saudi diplomacy had matured and they had arrived. But it was at a time of very fraught relations with the U.S. We forget that there are always fraught relations between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. It ebbs and flows. And King Abdullah at the time was very upset with the Obama administration for not having done more for the Syrian uprising and opposition to Bashar al-Assad. And so King Abdullah woke up the next morning and said, actually, I don't want the seat. So they gave it away and the Jordanians took it over. So there's always that possibility with the Saudis that they suddenly do something different or change their mind. So far, I've found Saudi diplomacy evolving in a very interesting and much more mature way over the last year. But we'll have to see whether they can maintain that. And what about the links with China? What do you make of that? And particularly like given that China appears to have brokered this rapprochement with Iran, an extraordinary development. I would caveat that by saying that they didn't broker it, they brought it to the finish line. This was the result of two years of talks between the Saudis and the Iranians, which the Iraqis had been shepherding the Jordanians and the Americans, of course, in the background, encouraging this. And I think the Saudis engaged in these talks without believing it would ever lead anywhere, but wanting to look like the responsible player and be able to say to the Americans, you know, look, we tried. It's not going anywhere. And your negotiations about the nuclear deal aren't going to go anywhere. But we're being the adults here and we're giving it a try. The reason why it finally got to the finish line is because tensions were rising too quickly in the region and the Saudis were very worried that they would be on the receiving end of more missiles by the Houthis in Yemen or other drone-style attacks as they had been in 2019 with the attack against the Apec oil facility. And Mohammed bin Salman wants to avoid that at all cost. And so they thought they needed to bring this to the finish line to defuse tensions. And who can guarantee such an accord? Well, certainly not the Americans who don't have a relationship with the Iranians. Going to the Russians would have been the worst idea possible at this time and at any time. And so they went to the Chinese. And I think that was a smart move. And the Americans were initially a bit surprised. And then they thought, well, sure, yeah, we'll we'll take it. But I see this as a way of buying time, breathing space for both the Saudis and the Iranians. You do write about 
MBS putting a, quotes, high price on his signature to the Abraham Accords. That's the other extremely important peace treaty that is currently trying to normalise relations between Israel, the UAE and Bahrain, Sudan and Morocco, facilitated by the US. Now, you say the Saudis want a civilian nuclear program with domestic uranium enrichment as part of this, as sort of a quid pro quo. I would have thought that would make both the Americans and other countries in the region very nervous. It would indeed, which is why this is a very tall order. If I may, I I would like to make a distinction between the Saudi-Iran rapprochement and the Abraham Accords. The Saudi-Iran rapprochement is not a peace deal, and I think it's important that we keep it in context. Mm. The Saudis and the Iranians have had a rapprochement before. The 90s were an era of detente between the two countries. There were various accords signed, mutual visits. So it's not as though this has never happened and it's groundbreaking. It is important, uh, but we need to keep it in context. And it is not a peace treaty. There is no treaty signed. The Abraham Accords are actually also not exactly a peace treaty because these countries it's are more not transactional, is it? Well, it's it's more of an accord, uh, which is different mm-hmm. than a, than a peace treaty, because these countries are not officially at war with Israel. The countries that are at war with Israel are still Lebanon and um, and Syria, for example, who share a border and have physically been at war. Of course, Egypt and Jordan have a peace treaty with Israel, having been at war with Israel in the past. But countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and others have not actually had a state of war with Israel. So the accords are a way of norm normalizing the relationship between Arab countries and Israel, where there have been no relations in the past. And the Saudis are putting a very high price on that because that's their leverage. They're going to ask for the maximum to try to get, you know, not the minimum, but the best deal that they can. And I do think it's important, and to their credit, they are the only ones who still insist that this must come with some something for the Palestinians. And the Saudis say that they would like this to be statehood and a clearly defined Palestinian state. I think they will settle for less and try to convince the Palestinians to settle for less. But it would transform the region as well, Mm. if that were to take place, if it comes with something worthy and that allows the Palestinians to have a a state where they can live with dignity um, and, and without occupation. Look, dare I ask you to forecast, where do you think this will all be in five years' time? Oh, I try never to forecast because uh, the world is a um, is a rapidly changing place. I analyse, I read the trend lines I try to decipher, and there are different trajectories that we can go on from from here. I think five years from now is a very long time. Nobody would have predicted the Ukraine war. There are always black swan events. And it really depends on, A, how the Ukraine war unfolds. And I don't think that we're going to see a definitive, a decisive victory by one side or the other. And I also really think that it depends on who wins the next presidential election in the US. What I would say is that I think that we are very much at an inflection point, similar to 
1990-1991 with the end of the Cold War, the end of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, the fall of the Wall of Berlin, the liberation of Kuwait, the occupation by Syria of, of Lebanon, which ushered in the new world order as President Bush at the time, Bush Sr., described it. I think we're at this inflection point and we'll only know in a year or two really which trajectory we have taken. I personally think that the trend lines are not very good. We're looking at a rise in authoritarianism, a slide back of democratic values, and the failure of many democratic-leaning opposition movements around the world, from Beirut to uh, Egypt to Tunisia, all the way to, to Venezuela. So this is I don't want to sound defeatist. I'm an optimist who who worries a lot, like Madeleine Albright once said about democracy's future. I think the trend lines are not very good at the moment, but I believe that the arc of history bends towards justice. I'm not sure that we'll see justice in our lifetime, but we, we have to continue to strive for it. Kim Guttis, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Kim Guttis, G-H-A-T-T-A-S. She's the author of Black Wave um, and the host of a podcast, People Like Us. She was interviewed on The Religion Report by Andrew West, very interestingly, about that book. And you can find her excellent article on uh, Saudi diplomacy on the Financial Times website. That that, uh, religion report was back in 2021, but it's really worth seeking out. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.